Hello students, welcome to the final episode of Colonialism and the Countryside. You have already heard about how the lives of peasants and zamindars of colonial Bengal and the Paharyas and Santhals of the Rajmahal hills were changing. Now, let us move across to Western India and to a later period and explore what was happening in the countryside in the Bombay Deccan. Through the 19th century, peasants in various parts of India rose in revolt against moneylenders and grain dealers. One such revolt occurred in 1875 in the Deccan. The movement began at Supa, which is a large village in Pune district. It was a market center where many shopkeepers and moneylenders lived. On 12th May 1875, riots from surrounding rural areas gathered and attacked the shopkeepers, demanding their bahikhatas and debt bonds. They burnt the khatas, looted grain shops, and in some cases set fire to the houses of sahukars. From Pune, the revolt spread to Ahmednagar. Then over the next two months, it spread even further, over an area of 6,500 square kilometers. More than 30 villages were affected. Everywhere, the pattern was the same. Sahukars were attacked, account books burnt, and debt bonds destroyed. Terrified of peasant attacks, the sahukars fled the villages, very often leaving their property and belongings behind. As the revolt spread, British officials saw the spectre of 1857. Police posts were established in villages to frighten rebellious peasants into submission. Troops were quickly called in. The British rule expanded from Bengal to other parts of India. New systems of revenue were also imposed. The permanent settlement was rarely extended to any region beyond Bengal. Why was this so? One reason was that after 1810 agricultural prices rose increasing the value of the harvest produce and enlarging the income of the Bengal zamindars since the revenue demand was fixed under the permanent settlement the colonial state could not claim any share of this enhanced income keen on expanding its financial resources the colonial government had to think of ways to maximize its land revenue So in territories annexed in the 19th century temporary revenue settlements were made the revenue set- settlement that was introduced in the bombay deccan came to be known as the rayatwari settlement unlike the bengal system the revenue was directly settled with the rayat the average income from different types of soil was estimated the revenue paying capacity of the rayat was assessed and a proportion of it fixed as a share of the state The lands were resurveyed every 30 years and the revenue rates increased. Therefore, the revenue demand was no longer permanent. But there were several limitations to this. The revenue that was demanded was so high that in many places peasants deserted their villages and migrated to new regions. In areas of poor soil and fluctuating rainfall, the problem was particularly acute. When rains failed and harvests were poor, peasants found it impossible to pay the revenue. The collectors in charge of revenue collection were keen on demonstrating their efficiency and pleasing their superiors so they went about extracting payment with utmost severity when someone failed to pay his crops were seized and a fine was imposed on the whole village by the 1830s the problem became more severe prices of agricultural products fell sharply after 1832 and did not recover for over a decade and a half this meant a further decline in peasants income At the same time the countryside was devastated by a famine that struck in the years 1832 to 
One third of the cattle of Deccan was killed, and half the population died. Those who survived had no agricultural stocks to see them through the crisis. Unpaid balances of revenue mounted. Then came the cotton boom. Before the 1860s, three-fourths of raw cotton imports into Britain came from America. British cotton manufacturers had for long been worried about this dependence on American supplies. What would happen if this source was cut off? So, in 1857, the Cotton Supply Association was founded in Britain, and in 1859, the Manchester Cotton Company was formed. Their objective was to encourage cotton production in every part of the world suited for its growth. India was seen as a country that could supply cotton to Lancashire if the American supply dried up. It possessed suitable soil, a climate favorable to cotton cultivation, and cheap labor. When the American Civil War broke out in 1861, a wave of panic spread through cotton circles in Britain. Raw cotton imports from America fell to less than three percent of the normal. Frantic messages were sent to India and elsewhere to increase cotton exports to Britain. As cotton prices soared, export merchants in Bombay were keen to secure as much cotton as possible to meet the British demand. So they gave advances to urban sahukars, who in turn extended credit to those rural money lenders who promised to secure the produce. These developments had a profound impact on the Deccan countryside. Number one, the riots in the Deccan villages suddenly found access to seemingly limitless credit. They were being given rupees hundred as advance for every acre they planted with cotton. And second, sahukars were more than willing to extend the long-term loan. But these boom years did not bring prosperity to all cotton producers. Some rich peasants did gain, but for the large majority, cotton expansion just meant heavier debt. While the boom lasted, cotton merchants in India had visions of capturing the world market in raw cotton, permanently displacing America. By 1865, these dreams were over. As the Civil War ended, cotton production in America revived, and Indian cotton exports to Britain steadily declined. Export merchants and sahukars in Maharashtra were no longer keen on extending long-term credit. They could see the demand for Indian cotton fall and cotton prices slide downwards. So they decided to close down their operations, restrict their advances to peasants, and demand repayment of outstanding debts. While credit dried up, the revenue demand increased. In the new settlement, the demand was increased dramatically, from 50 to 100 percent. How could the riots pay this inflated demand at a time when prices were falling and cotton fields disappearing? They again turned to the money lenders, but the money lenders now refused <coughs> loans. He no longer had the confidence in the riots' capacity to pay. The refusal of money lenders to extend loans enraged the riots. What infuriated them was not simply that they had got deeper and deeper into debt, or that they were utterly dependent on the money lender for survival, but that money lenders were being insensitive to their plight. The money lenders were violating the customary norms of the countryside. A variety of customary norms regulated the relationship between the money lender and the rayat. One general norm was that the interest charged could not be more than the principal. This was meant to limit the money lender's exactions and defined what could be counted as fair interest. Under colonial rule, this norm broke down. In one of the many cases investigated by the Deccan Riots Commission, the money lender had charged over rupees two thousand as interest on a loan of rupees hundred. 
In 1859, the British passed a limitation law that stated that the loan bonds signed between moneylenders and rayats would have the validity only for three years. The law was meant to check the accumulation of interest over time. The moneylender, however, turned this law around, forcing the rayats to sign a new bond every three years. When a new bond was signed, the unpaid balance, that is, the original loan and the accumulated interest, was entered as the principal, on which a new set of interest charges was calculated. The moneylenders refused to give receipts when loans were repaid, entered fictitious figures in bonds, acquired the peasant's harvest at low prices and ultimately took over his property. Over time, peasants came to associated this misery of their lives with the new regime of bonds and deeds. They were made to sign and put thumb impressions on documents, but they did not know what they were actually signing. They had no idea of the clauses that moneylenders inserted in the bonds. They feared the written word, but they had no choice, because to survive, they needed loans, and the moneylenders were unwilling to give loans without legal bonds. With this, we conclude this chapter. Please give your feedback and any other queries during our next discussion. Thank you.